0: you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose sermon podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website SojournMontrose.org Thank you, Jordan. Peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is one of the pastors here. It's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, before we get into anything sermon related, I want to say that we have a covenant membership class uh, following this gathering. It'll start at 12 and will end at 2. Um, and so if if you haven't signed up for that, but you've been coming around for a while and you're interested in knowing more about what we believe at Sojourn, what, what it is that we hope to accomplish in the neighborhood, what it looks like to belong here as a member, I would encourage you after the gathering to go pick up some lunch and bring it back and, and come to the class. It will, be, um, it will be a great place to ask questions and get information. It's in no way an obligation to join. And so don't feel like coming to the class automatically makes you a member. It's just an opportunity to get information. and so please avail yourself of that opportunity if that's something that you think would be at all helpful to you. With that being said, we are in uh, the season of Eastertide in the church calendar, which is this, this brief season following Easter where the church has historically reveled in uh, the mystery and the power and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus and, and what that does for us and for the whole world. And so we've spent the last two weeks um, talking about the, the hope of having resurrected hearts and resurrected bodies. And this week, we're going to be discussing... How the resurrection of Jesus allowed for a resurrected Israel. And for many in the room, you might be wondering, why would I, an American Christian in 2023, care about a resurrected Israel? What has that to do with me? Um, and so uh, let me briefly do some groundwork, and then we'll pray and jump in. But we'll start in the beginning uh, when God created all things, and He created Adam and Eve, and he set Adam to be this covenant representative for all mankind. He was the, the federal head, the king of humanity. And he gave Adam a mission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, make much of God in all the world. And Adam and this was Adam's duty to relate the beauty of God to the world. And Adam failed in his covenant responsibilities, but God's desire to have a people for himself, a people to whom and through whom he would reveal his glory to the world did not end with Adam's failure. Eventually, God made a, his covenant relationship explicitly clear with a man named Abraham. Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going to be the father of a great nation and that this nation would bless all the nations of the earth. And so through Abraham's offspring, God establishes the nation of Israel who is to be like a new Adam in the world. A a nation that is taking on this duty of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, and making much of the glory of God among the nations. And the nation of Israel ha- had this task and in, in at moments they were faithful and at moments they, they were failures but uh, eventually God needed to establish a people on more steadfast ground than the nation of Israel. He sent his son Jesus Christ to be the truly new Adam to establish full reconciliation between God and his people to make his people Israel into the people he had always desired them to be and this people is called the church now the church is not a replacement for Israel but instead what we glean from this theology of God's covenantal relationship with his people the the church is Israel clarified it is the Israel that God has always been preparing to have. The Apostle Paul calls the church of the New Covenant, the church of the New Testament, the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6, Me- meaning that, that to be Israel is more about being united to God through Christ than it is about ethnicity or locale. John Frame, a uh, really prolific Reformed historian and theologian says, Israel is the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. And so the resurrected Israel is the church, which is why a resurrected Israel matters for us. We are the resurrected people of God the people of God who are bound to him through covenantal love and given a mission of making much of him in the world and blessing the nations. And so let's pray and dive into what that means for us. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that as we open your word, as we consider the call that you have placed on our lives and on our institution, that you would humble us before you. Make us fully alive and aware of your wisdom and your beauty, of your incredible love for us, of the life that you are inviting us into, of the task you have given us to do, and give us zeal that we cannot muster on our own to do the work you've called us to. Give us confidence in your spirit. Give us bravery according to your son that we might be your people in all that that entails. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So the last two weeks, we've talked about how the resurrection affects us deeply as individuals. So two weeks ago, we talked about resurrected hearts, how through faith in Christ and through the coming of the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed. We can be made alive. Where we were spiritually dead, we can be made alive to the beauty of God, the grace of God, the love of God. We can have our desires changed, our hearts changed. We can have our whole lives reoriented as God gives us new and resurrected hearts hearts and then last week, Josh talked about the promise of resurrected bodies, this blessed promise of eternal life, that though the bodies we now inhabit will one day die, God will return in Christ and he will raise them physically to eternal life with him forever, which means that what we do with our bodies that are mortal can, can be fully devoted to God, that we don't have to seek all of our pleasure and satisfaction in the few decades we have, but instead we can give it all to the Lord because we have this promise of eternal life with him where we will experience fullness of joy and so we can seek holiness and faithfulness in the presence. But this week we're talking not just about being resurrected persons but about being a resurrected people raised for the purpose of making disciples. And to understand this in full, I think we should go back to Babylon. See, in the days of Ezekiel, Israel had been carried off into Babylon as captives and exiles. This is after the the kingdom was divided following the the sin of King David and 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 many poor kings following him, and so Israel had been divided. They had been pursuing idols and and worshipping the things of the world. They had been assimilating into other cultures, and God sent Babylon as a judgment and discipline on them, that they would be carried away, stripped away from their homeland, and that they would be to live among the nations as a destitute people. And it's in this context that God calls Ezekiel to become a prophet to the people in exile. And so this is what the word of the Lord says in Ezekiel 37, as, as the prophet writes, he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, reading this literature, we need to understand what Ezekiel is telling us about. We should not think that what is happening here is that God has physically taken Ezekiel and placed him in a valley that was literally full of skeletons. Instead, God is using the power of the Spirit to give Ezekiel a vision that conveys truth about his people and what he plans to do with them. This is similar to how God operates with the Apostle John when he gives him the revelation. It's that Ezekiel's taken up in the Spirit and he's placed in this valley Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and you shall and will and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so we're gonna stop reading there, but, but what's going on is is that this the prophet Ezekiel, he's called to, to prophesy to these bones. He's called to speak to them the word of the Lord. And it's through the word of the Lord that these bones are going to come alive. The language in this passage is reminiscent of the first two chapters of Genesis when God creates Adam and, and breathes life into Adam. See, the, the word for breath in the Hebrew here, both in Ezekiel 37 and in the first chapters of Genesis, it's a word in Hebrew that also means spirit. Spirit. And so there's this idea that God is going to make, he made Adam alive by breathing his spirit into him, and he's going to make Israel alive by breathing his spirit into them. And at this time, Israel's, Israel's a destitute people, and yet the word of the Lord is going to cause the bones to come alive. They're gonna be raised into what the passage later calls an exceedingly great army representing the whole house of Israel. And so Israel's a divided people and the resurrection's going to unite them Israel is a dead people and the word of the Lord is going to revive them. They were a hopeless people and the spirit of God is going to fill them with hope in, in the promises of God. They were a dry and static people and the power of the good news of God is going to make them alive and vibrant. And vibrant. This is the prophecy that God is giving to his people. One in which God is promising to his people that they will not be in exile forever. They will not be destitute forever, but it's not just about exile and and return to the homeland. It's also one in which the current state of Israel is made really clear. See, God's people are in exile because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because they've run away from God. They've, They've rebelled against him. They've run away from him, and so they've become like dry bones like skeletons. Skeletons, a worthless remnant of a once great people. Lifeless, useless, hopeless, left to deteriorate in the waste and made brittle by the sun. This vision is is meant to remind us of the valley of the shadow of death. In Psalm 23, that beautiful psalm in which the Lord acts as a shepherd and walks with the psalmist. Notice that Ezekiel in the passage, he's being called son of man, a name that will be given to Jesus when he comes. And through the son of man's obedience to the commandments of God, his submission to the will of God, he makes a way for the dead to be raised and gives them purpose. This is the ministry of Jesus that Ezekiel's talking about. Here are the next four verses. It says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And I prophesied, as I prophesied, there was a sound And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. Uh, Imagine being the prophet Ezekiel in this moment. The Lord sent you into this valley full of dry bones, full of skeletons, just waste. And he calls you to do this seemingly foolish thing, which is to start talking to all these skeletons. And as you obey the word of the Lord, what, what's happening is the bones start shaking and, and coming together. And like you can imagine the rattle of these bones coming together. And he says, and behold, I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath Church, this isn't just about a return from exile in the future for Israel. Although that does happen. Israel does return from Babylon. They do return to their homeland. It, it, what it really is, it's, it's a promise that's partially fulfilled in the return from exile, but it's fully fulfilled at the coming of Christ and through the ministry of Jesus. It, it's about the work that God has promised that he was going to do through his servant, Jesus Christ, his Son. See, Jesus is the true Son of Man who's come to a people dead in their sin and raised them to life by being obedient to the Father. Jesus is the true Word of God which gives life to dry bones, which turns cemeteries into sanctuaries. He's the risen one through whom all will be raised. He's the righteous one who has clothed the naked bones of the dead with his flesh and blood, his merit. See, the prophecy talks later of this Davidic king who will reign forever and a reality in which the people of God will be his in full and he will be theirs. And and this is talking about the things that will come in the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, the true son of David, the true king who reigns forever over his people, the one in whom people have full reconciliation with God, where we can truly say he is our God and we are his people. This dead multitude that's been raised to serve as an army of the Lord, carrying out his work among the nations so that they might know him. So the dry bones in the valley, it's a portrait of old covenant Israel in exile. And the portrait of the mighty risen army in the valley through whom the nations will know that our God is the Lord. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Behold, the old is gone, and the new has come. A new people raised for mission to make the good news of the resurrection known among the nations. And why is this our mission? And here's why. Because if God's chosen and covenant people could become like dry bones in their sin, how much more are those who are far from God? Those who don't know his righteous law, those who haven't understood the power of his promise, those who, who've never heard of the depths of his mercy, the steadfastness of his love. See, all who are apart from God and Christ are dry bones. They're skeletons. Jesus knew this in his ministry. Before he was killed, he, he sits atop a mountain looking over Jerusalem, and he weeps seeing that this great city which housed the temple of God was nothing but a valley of dry bones. We see this in the ministry of Paul as he travels throughout the Roman Empire, going to Athens and Rome and Philippi, reasoning and proclaiming the gospel of the resurrection to dry bones wherever he goes. And and for the last 2,000 years, the ministry of the church has been that of the people of God journeying through valleys of dry bones, looking out at them and hearing the Lord ask them, Oh, sons, oh, daughters, can these bones live? And the faithful men and women who have come before us, who've been raised by the power of God, who've looked upon the worst of work of Christ, and, and they've said in unison, oh, Lord, you know. The church of Jesus Christ makes disciples because every person who doesn't know the love of God that's in Christ is like a dried-out skeleton in a wasteland. They're like Israel in Ezekiel 37, who God described as having lost their hope and having been cut off and accursed from the blessings of God. And so if you're a Christian in the room, those things aren't true of you anymore. You're no longer like a skeleton in a wasteland. You've been raised. He's put flesh on you. He's put his breath in you. But don't start to think that that makes you better than your non-Christian neighbors. Remember what Paul told Christians all throughout the first century? He kept saying things like this. Remember, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So it was God's grace, not your cleverness, not your righteousness through which you've been saved. The New Testament tells us that being dead and our trespasses and sins, it's not simply a matter of how you live in the present. We we don't make disciples so that people can live their best life now. We make disciples because it's a matter of eternal consequence. In the Gospels, we see Jesus speaking far more about hell and torment than he does heaven and paradise. He, He does this for a reason. And our neighbors who don't know Christ are hopeless as dry bones if we don't share the good news with them, if we don't show them the love of God, if we don't offer them the hospitality of the kingdom, if we don't proclaim to them the power of the resurrection. And so it is our job to disciple the nations, to care for our neighbors, to feed the hungry. That is the job of the church. That is the job of the resurrected Israel. And it isn't only the job of those who feel called to this sort of work. It isn't only the job of pastors or missionaries or your parish leaders. It is the job of the family of God, the whole Army of the Lord, the church of Jesus Christ. It is a job that requires all members of the family to join in on participating. And and this is what I'm getting at. I think there's a couple of ways that we naturally justify not making our life's work evangelism and duty to the mission of God in the world. And I know these because I've looked at my heart and I found my excuses. All right, so I'm, I'm not preaching from a pedestal here. This sermon is as much for me as it is for you. I think the first thing that we use to justify our lack of evangelism is that we claim that those things aren't our calling or our gifting, right? We, we hide behind our lack of preparedness, our, our insecurities of our cleverness. We, we, we just assume that that must be somebody else's job, and so we justify it by cheering on those that we know who are doing the work. We get excited when we get the newsletter from our missionary friend or when somebody in our parish tells us about how they've been sharing the gospel with their coworker. We, we feel like that is enough. Or the second thing we do is we hide behind the reality that, that this job is the job of the church as an institution. And, and so... So our individual participation in it is probably of, of little consequence. It's the church's job to make disciples. And so we consider that our involvement in the church is us having done our part. Well, I, I tithe monthly, I, I serve on the kids' team, I show up at my parish gathering regularly. That I'm I'm doing my part. But here's the problem: if we if we hide behind these excuses. Nobody gets converted. If we hide behind these excuses, our friends and neighbors, they go to hell. If we hide behind these excuses, you and me, we miss out on the radically exciting and fulfilling work of giving all that we have, every ounce of our being to the glory of God and the love of others. See, Paul, in the first chapter of Colossians, he he encourages the Colossians to live into their calling that they might be pleasing to God. There's this idea that, that we, as the children of God, can feel his pleasure when we do the work he's called us to do. We can feel his pleasure. And so if we are collectively to fulfill our mission, then we must all individually pursue that fulfillment. The church won't start making disciples unless the members of the church are making disciples. A body only works if the parts are working together, working in unison. And so I want you to consider this for a moment if you're a Christian in the room. Do you consider the reality that your loved ones and neighbors and coworkers and friends who don't know Christ are as hopeless as dry bone? Do you consider the reality that they are destined to encounter the terrifying wrath of God on that day when Christ returns? Do you look at their lives and their hopes and their dreams and their decisions and their values and see that they're missing out? missing out on the fundamental truths of God's grace in Christ, missing out on the fullness of purpose that's founded in sonship to the God of the universe. And I ask this because, because I really think that evangelism and outreach, these are weak points for our congregation. I know they are for me. We do some things really well here at Sojourn. I think we do community really well. I think we're a great church for transplant Christians from other cities or or other churches to come and find a home and belong. and, And hear me, those are wonderful things. Those are beautiful things. That should be true of any congregation. But we must be better at reaching our neighbors and loving the lost in our midst. We must love them and we must seek them and we must preach Christ to them that they might be saved. See, when Jesus came, he told us why he came. He said, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. And he's invited us to join him in the seeking so that we might introduce them to the one who does the saving. And that we might get to be participants in this pleasing work of drawing all things to Christ, reconciling the whole world to God in Christ. Let's go back to the text for the moment. And I want you to imagine the valley, not as Israel and Babylon, but as your neighbors here in Mantras. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I asked you to consider if you realize that many of your neighbors are like dry bones because I figure there's some reasons that we don't reach out to them. With this text in mind, I think these are two reasons that we don't evangelize. I think first, some of us look out at at the dry bones around us. And when God asks us, do you think they can live? Our honest answer is no. I don't think they can live. I know there are people in my life that when I look at them and I consider proclaiming the truth of the gospel, I have almost zero hope that God will make them alive in Christ. Almost zero hope that he would redeem them. So that makes me apathetic. It makes me faithless to move toward them in love. And I think the second thing that happens is sometimes we don't realize that we're surrounded by dry bones, because we've so conformed ourselves to the patterns and habits and thought processes and values of the world, ideas about comfort and lifestyle and career and family that our neighbors don't really look that different than us. They look more like mirrors than skeletons. To the first reason of not having confidence that the Lord can raise them I want to encourage you to look at the empty tomb. There is nothing your God cannot do. There's nothing he cannot do. And it is his expressed purpose and desire to draw a sinful people to himself, to make them alive through the work of Christ, through the power of his spirit, to his glory. And so if he can raise me and you, then he can raise your neighbors too. He can raise your father or your sister or your coworker or your friend. The prophet heard the question, can these bones live? And he said, and I imagine his voice was trembling when he said it. He said, oh Lord, you know. You know they can. You know you can do it. Is there anything too grand for you, God? Surely not. Surely not. So consider your neighbors this morning. Consider your parents or your friends, whoever it is that that the Lord's putting on your heart, and and consider that the Lord is asking you, can these bones live? And tell him, oh Lord, you know they can. You know they can. And to the second hang up, we need to look at what we're doing with our lives. We need to honestly evaluate our lives and see if, if there is a way in which we're spending our time and spending our money and allowing our heart's affections to drift and allowing our mind to drift to fall in love with the things of the world and, and ask ourselves, is everything in my life serving the purpose of taking my part in this resurrected Israel so that the nations might know that God is the Lord? And those things that aren't serving that purpose, they just have to go. They just have to go. We should be a distinct people. The Apostle Peter calls us a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart. We shouldn't look so much like the skeletons around us. But when we commit ourselves to the work of making disciples through building relationships and exposing people to the grace of God in the family of God and sharing the gospel of the resurrection with them, what we'll realize is that the Christian life, though distinct and difficult, is far more exhilarating and meaningful and fulfilling than you ever dared to imagine it might be. Anybody in this room who has actually had the courage and bravery to devote themselves to sharing the good news of Christ with someone who doesn't know him, whether that person turned and believed or not, there's no way you can say to me that that wasn't one of the most exciting things you've ever done, the most fulfilling things you've ever done, something that made you feel like, oh, I felt the pleasure of God when I shared the resurrection with my friend. And for those in the room who don't yet believe, I want to invite you to lean in. I want to tell you what we should have been telling you and what all too often we failed to tell you. God has seen his people that he created. He found them to be dead in their sins like skeletons in a valley, hopelessly drifting and seeking to find meaning in things that can't save them, won't satisfy them, will never last, and he's come to them. He's come to them in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, a man who would bear their sins so that they might be forgiven, a man who would die their death so that when their body dies, they won't feel the sting of God's wrath in that. And then he rose from the dead so that they can have eternal hope of belonging to God as his children forever. That, that When he rose from the dead, he said, I'm the king of Everything. And of everyone who wants to live forever, everyone who wants to know true love, everyone who wants to be fully forgiven, to rid themselves of shame and guilt and find rest, they can come to me. He will be your God, and you will be counted among His people. So, Christian brothers and sisters, what's our next step? I would say it's to humble ourselves to the reality that we have been raised for a purpose. At the end of maybe the most explicit explanation of how it is that God saves us in Ephesians 2, when we get to this beautiful doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and then Paul tells us why. He says, you were raised for good works. And so, so we need to seek to make a plan for how our lives are going to fulfill the purpose that God has prepared before Prepared beforehand. We need to make a plan for how we are going to preach hope to the dry bones in our midst. And then we need to pray and pray and pray for enough courage to actually follow through on the plan that we've made. Enough courage to set aside the fears that we might have of of what might this sort of life actually mean for me. The courage to reach out to that neighbor you haven't yet shaken their hand to turn the conversation toward Christ with your brother who's far from him, to pray for your boss who, who you know is going through something difficult. Invite your friend to the parish gathering who you've been meaning to invite for years. Look at, speak to, pray with, and be generous toward that homeless man you see on your drive to work every day. You were saved from death and into life and you were saved for a cause the cause of good works, the ministry of reconciliation. So discipleship and mission are things that we often separate in our understanding of the Christian life, but there is no such thing as discipleship apart from mission or mission apart from discipleship. They're one and the same because disciples follow their teacher, and our teacher has constantly been running toward the lost. Our teacher has moved into the valley. So let's follow him there. This is the ministry that is done, that is in, it's in the valley of the shadow of death. But our shepherd will be with us. He will comfort us. He'll protect us. He'll lead us beside still waters. This is the ministry in which David says, and my cup overflows. He concludes by saying, and I know I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, if we want a cup that overflows, then we need to give up everything and go into the valley of the shadow of death because that's where our shepherd is. And he's invited us to join him. Let's pray and then let's eat at that table he prepared for us.